So last week I started to explore the topic of right or wise effort in terms of how it's described in the context of the Noble Eightfold Path. And here it's defined by the Buddha in terms of the four great efforts, which in short, as a reminder, can be outlined as first, the effort to prevent unskillful mental states from arising. And then secondly, if they do arise, the effort to abandon them. Then third, the effort to develop skillful mental states. And fourth, when they have arisen, the effort to maintain and to perfect them. And last week I spoke mostly about the first two of these efforts, which are to do with unskillful mental states because to be able to access the clarity and stability of mind that support insight, first we need to clear out what gets in the way. Then when we've been successful in that, at least to some extent, we can start to notice that there's more room in the mind for the skillful states to come in. And that brings us to the third great effort, which is the effort to develop unarisen, wholesome mental states. And this short statement contains quite a few implications for our practice in terms of discernment. First, we need to know the difference between unwholesome and wholesome mental states. Second, we need to know whether wholesome states are present in the mind or not. And third, if they're not present, we need to know what will help them to arise. So last week I defined unwholesome states as ones that are harmful, either to ourselves, others, both. And conversely, wholesome or skillful states are ones that are beneficial or helpful to ourselves and to others. So what specifically are these wholesome states that we're being encouraged to develop here? There are quite a lot. And so in a few minutes, I'll name a few examples. And as you listen to the list, you might like to just notice if there are any particular responses in relation to each word, because it's possible that with some, you might feel a sense of recognition or resonance, while for others, they might feel a little more foreign or distant. And it's not to judge any of these responses, but just to take them as useful information perhaps pointing to some qualities that you recognize are already quite strong in you and could be developed even more. Okay, so here are just a few examples of skillful states that you might have experienced at times on this retreat. Generosity. Kindness. Compassion. Appreciative joy, equanimity, mindfulness, investigation, energy, rapture, tranquility. Concentration, contentment, 
relinquishment, mental seclusion, patience, determination, trust or faith. So those are just a few examples of skillful qualities that we might cultivate. And you might have noticed a couple of classical lists from the Buddha's teachings in there. The four Brahma-Vihara, for example, and the seven factors of awakening. I'll come back to those in a moment, but just to reiterate that these skillful states can only arise when we've managed to reduce the unskillful ones. If the mind is filled with aversion, for example, it's usually quite hard to feel kindness or patience. It seems that when we're entangled in afflictive mental states, that entanglement seems to attract and support other afflictive states, hence the so-called multiple hindrance attack. We're fortunate, though, that this uh, works the other way, too, because when there are more skillful states in the mind, it's much harder for the unskillful ones to get a toehold. It's as if our hearts and minds become smooth and resilient and the afflictive states can't get a grip. So in this way, skillful states are both an antidote to unskillful ones, and they're a protection that prevents them from coming up in the first place. You may have noticed this for yourselves here on retreat. When our minds are more towards the skillful end of the spectrum, little things just don't bother us that much. But... On the other hand, when we're closer to the unskillful end of the spectrum, those same little things can suddenly loom quite large. So I'll give you a couple of examples of this just to illustrate it, how two scenarios can play out quite differently depending on the underlying mental qualities. So I'll I'll use myself in this hypothetical example I'm on retreat and it's towards the end of a long afternoon and I'm feeling quite tired. So I decide to give myself a break and go and have a cup of coffee. I start the coffee brewing, open the fridge and discover that the milk jug is empty and there's a wave of irritation and then a dilemma, should I just uh, drink soy milk with it instead even though I don't like the taste of it because I really can't be bothered making the effort to walk all the way to the kitchen. So I decide to take the easy option and go for the soy milk. Then I discover there's about a half a teaspoon of soy milk left in the carton. So I stomp over to the fridge in the kitchen. Mine's filled with irritation and blame and judgment and self-pity. And by the time I get back to the hall, the next session is mostly spent struggling with irritated and painful mind states. Obviously, in that example, there's not a lot of mindfulness, which is really the first line of defense, the moment-to-moment mindfulness that we've been emphasizing over and over. The second line of defense is the active cultivation of skillful states such as kindness. So I think of kindness and the other Brahma-Vihara practices as creating like a kind of soft armor that makes us more resilient and less reactive. So in the returning to the same scenario I just described, 
But this time I've just come from a session of metta practice. It's had some effect and my heart and mind are feeling relatively open. I go to make a cup of coffee and again I discover that the milk jug is empty. There might still be a pulse of irritation, but thanks to the previous hour of metta practice, I just notice it and it quickly passes. Then without any further thought, I walk over to the kitchen and I get another bottle of milk. As I come back with the milk, a yogi who's waiting for her coffee bows and thanks me. I feel glad that I made the effort. And when I come back to the hall, this time the mind drops quite effortlessly into a state of ease and calm and clarity. So that's a very simple example, but hopefully it illustrates how making the effort to orient towards skillful states creates a kind of a positive chain reaction one that helps other skillful states to strengthen. So that initial quality of metta in the heart-mind, it conditioned non-reactivity, which allowed for some generosity to arise. And then right action was possible. That led to gratitude from another yogi. There were further wholesome states of mind, and those were deepened in the meditation practice. So making the effort to develop skillful states is a powerful way of protecting ourselves from the afflictive states. But for many people, this orientation towards the skillful is not one that comes easily, and most of us need some training in it. Because as neuroscience has discovered, our minds have what's known as an inbuilt negativity bias which means that we tend to pay far more attention to what's unpleasant and painful than to what's pleasant and beneficial. So as Rick Hansen famously describes it, our minds are like Velcro for what's unpleasant and Teflon for what's pleasant. We tend to cling to difficulties while the beneficial experiences slide right off. And when it comes to wholesome mental states, It's exactly because they aren't threatening in any way that it can be easy to overlook them. So when I gave the instructions for meta practice the other week, I used the metaphor of the Hubble telescope. And I talked about how just the act of recognizing skillful states such as meta, no matter how faint or distant they might seem at first, just that act of recognizing helps them to grow. Then with practice, we start to become familiar with how they feel in the body and the heart and the mind. They strengthen and become resources for us, supports that build confidence in the practice and in our capacity to do it. So there's a lot that could be said about all the different skillful qualities that get developed as our meditation practice deepens. But to keep it simple tonight, I'd like to focus on just one particular set of of skillful qualities. As an example, these are the four Brahma-Vihara practices of metta or kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. And I'd like to explore 
all four of these practices together as one way that we might put this third great effort into practice, the effort to develop unarisen, wholesome mental states. And I chose this set of the four Brahmaviharas because they are meditation practices. They can be cultivated. And also because all of you already have some familiarity with them, at least the first one, metta or kindness, goodwill. So tonight, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about each one of them. Instead, I'm going to focus more on the relationships between them, how all four of them can be developed together to support the heart and mind staying in balance and to strengthen our capacity to meet the full spectrum of what life has to offer us, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. So one way of thinking about these four Brahmavihara qualities is as four different flavors of love. And when all these four are practiced together, they reinforce and strengthen each other in the same way that a four-strand piece of rope is stronger than a rope with just one strand. And although we might start out with the cultivation of metta or kindness, at times the heart quite naturally moves into the, these other four, other three expressions of love. At other times, if our practice is feeling unbalanced in some way, we might need to actively direct the attention towards an antidote. For example, if we set out to practice compassion and we start to feel ourselves lost in grief, then changing to mudita practice, cultivating appreciative joy, might be a useful strategy to help us come back to balance. So to actively uh, work all four of these Brahma-Viharas in the service of balance, we really need to be familiar with what they are and the different ways that they reinforce and support each other. It's like we need to become fluent in these four different but related languages of metta, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. So to begin to get a sense of these different qualities and how they relate to each other, I'd like to read you a description of them that was put together by Caroline Jones and Paul Burroughs. Caroline, some of you know, is the current resident teacher at the Forest Refuge, and Paul Burroughs is an English Dharma teacher. And this description very succinctly describes all four Brahmaviharas, the near and far enemies for each quality, and as well as the ways that they balance each other out. So they say, metta, or kindness, is the love that connects. It's an antidote to all forms of aversion. It is not attachment. If it slides into sentimentality, Karuna, or compassion, brings the heart back into balance. Karuna, the love that responds, is an antidote to cruelty. It is not pity. If it slides into sorrow, mudita, or appreciative joy, brings the heart back into balance. 
mudita, the love that celebrates, is an antidote to envy. It is not competitive. If it slides into agitated excitement, upeka or equanimity brings the heart back into balance. Upeka, the love that allows, is the antidote to partiality. It is not indifference. If it slides into disconnection, metta brings the heart back into balance. So in that description, you might hear how each of the qualities can be used to overcome some kind of unhelpful mind state and how each quality helps to balance the others out and how they slide quite naturally into the next. But in the end, we return again to metta. So if the last quality, equanimity, slides into disconnection, it's metta that brings the heart back into balance. So we come full circle, working through each of these qualities over and over again. Our path of practice becomes a spiraling journey around and through all four Brahma-Vihara qualities, creating a beautiful force field of unconditional love. And a few years ago now, I had the good fortune to be on retreat at the Forest Refuge with Caroline Jones and Joseph Goldstein teaching there. And with their help, I was uh, exploring both the wisdom and the compassion wings of the practice. And as I was exploring the Brahma-Vihara practices, I came up with a metaphor that's a little bit similar to Caroline's that really helped me to understand how these practices work together. And it was inspired by a a well-known quote that Joseph shared from the 19th century Tibetan meditation master, Shabkar. Some of you may be familiar with it, his description of the nature of mind He says, the mind nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. There's a lot in that, so I'll read it again. The mind nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. Um, Perhaps because I've been practicing the Brahma Viharas on that retreat, that image of the heart-mind being like a flawless piece of crystal really struck me. Because it so beautifully conveys how when the heart and mind are perfectly clear, it automatically responds in the appropriate way with kindness or compassion or appreciative joy or equanimity, just as a crystal or a diamond naturally responds to light. And perhaps as the microphone responds to something else, I'll see if I can get it a bit more stable. So the sometimes a diamond flashes red or blue or yellow depending on the light conditions. And all of these colors are possible because of the diamond's innate purity. 
So one way of understanding how these four qualities are related, interrelated, I started to think of in terms of a diamond shape. So coming back to this diamond metaphor, just in terms of the simple shape of a diamond, you can imagine it with a point at the bottom, a point at the top, and a point at either side. And if you think of the bottom point, for me, that's where metta is located, because it's really the foundation that the other three emerge from. And it's said that when metta, the heart-mind of goodwill, turns towards what's difficult, it naturally flowers as compassion. So I see compassion as being one of the side points of the diamond. And then on the other side, when metta or goodwill turns towards what's going well, it naturally flowers as mudita or appreciative joy. So I think of mudita, joy, being on the other side point of the diamond opposite from compassion. And then when joy and compassion are completely in balance, they join together at the top as equanimity. Equanimity is a slightly old-fashioned English word that basically means balance or evenness. The heart-mind is totally at ease without any reactivity, simply resting, poised and balanced. So this diamond diagram is just one way of seeing how these four practices might interrelate. And there are probably other ways we could think of them as being arranged. Perhaps, as Greg said the other day, equanimity is the foundation because it allows all the others to be stable and unconditional. Still, when we recognize that we may have got off balance in some way, we might try to think which of these practices might help the heart-mind come back to balance. So if, for example, the practice, the metta, starts to feel a bit dry or superficial, we might move to compassion for a while. When we tune into suffering with an attitude of kindness, it can strengthen our sense of purpose and bring more depth to the metta. At other times, though, we might find ourselves getting bogged down by getting too focused on suffering. We might start to feel overwhelmed by the 10,000 sorrows. And then we might need to consciously make the effort to turn towards the 10,000 joys, to incline the heart and mind towards mudita, appreciative joy, cultivating gratitude for what's going well in our own and others' lives. Sometimes, though, this mudita can shade into its near enemy of elation, a kind of giddiness or perhaps attachment to what's pleasant. And then we might need to shift to equanimity practice to again consciously cultivate that evenness and balance of heart and mind. And equanimity is always a useful antidote to any kind of imbalance. So that's another reason that I put it at the top of the diamond. Because metaphorically, it's the pinnacle of all of these mind states. So that's a very brief overview of how these Brahma-Viharas can work together, just as an encouragement to explore in your own practice how they can be used to develop skillful states. 
And I also know from my own experience that when we are in the grip of unskillful states, it can feel like the Brahma-Vihara qualities are a million miles away. And it can take immense effort even to remember what they are, let alone to put them into practice. But that effort is well worth making, even if at times it feels like just an intellectual exercise. I can still remember a time during my first three-month retreat here when my mind somehow got completely caught in aversion. And then there was aversion to the aversion and aversion to the aversion and so on. And it just felt like my psyche was bound up in barbed wire. And the harder I tried to get rid of the aversion, the more I was kind of lacerating myself somehow. And after many hours of struggle, I did have some vague inkling that perhaps metta might be a good thing to do. So I decided, okay, I'll go outside, I'll go for a walk around the loop and I'll try practicing metta. And I had the intention to use the phrases in relation to all beings. They were very familiar phrases to me. May all beings be safe and healthy and happy and free. But this time the aversion had such a hold on my mind that I just couldn't get the phrases out. I would start to say them and it was like they would wither and die in my mind before they could be completed. And about all I could manage was just to say all beings, all beings, all beings. And I walked about halfway around the loop and that was all I could say. But the miracle of metta was that that was enough. There was something about just recognizing intellectually there are more beings than just me. Just that, it started to soften. And eventually, by the time I got back here, I was in a much better frame of mind. So metta can be a powerful antidote to unskillful mental states, even when we don't feel it, perhaps even especially when we don't feel it. But there are times when metta doesn't seem to get any traction. And this is really one reason why I wanted to give an overview of all four of these practices. Because generally we hear a lot about metta and not so much about the other three. And I think this is unfortunate because it can give the impression that metta is supposed to be the default response to every situation. But in certain circumstances, in certain conditions, metta is not necessarily the most appropriate quality to be cultivating. So if we find ourselves coming, running up against serious obstacles in the metta practice, getting lost in all kinds of unskillful reactivity, this might be a good time to take a break from metta and turn instead to compassion, particularly to self-compassion or self-forgiveness. Because these are very powerful solvents for dissolving obstacles, for dissolving the places where we're stuck. And for many people, this invitation to practice self-compassion can be very challenging. It goes against a whole pile of individual and collective conditioning. 
many of us are uh, trained to value qualities such as independence or self-reliance. We have a lot of idealism or perfectionism. Often we have unworthiness and fear of vulnerability and so on. And many people are so hard on themselves that it just doesn't even occur to them that self-compassion might be a possibility. So quite often I have the experience of uh, people coming to me and telling me that their metta practice is not working. And when I ask them what they're doing, they'll often say, well, I'm trying to offer kindness to my ex-partner. I've been in a custody battle with him for five years and I'm just not feeling anything. (laughs) I'll say, okay. Have you considered practicing self-compassion? And the usual response is one of either blankness or sometimes outright horror. And the question is, why would I do that? And I'll say, well, it seems like you're experiencing pain, suffering. And they might recognize the truth of that, but there's still a sense that I don't deserve it, or that self-compassion is somehow cheating, it's weak or self-indulgent. But if we really explore it, this practice of self-compassion is anything but selfish. Because the more we can open to and receive any of the Brahma-viharas, including compassion, the better able we are to offer it to others. So although at first it might sound counterintuitive as a path to happiness, in practice this willingness to turn towards suffering can bring a lot of unexpected benefits. So I've mentioned a few times already this metaphor of the two wings to awakening, being wisdom and compassion, and how these need to be in balance for our practice to deepen. And if we, co- if we practice compassion in the right way, it can be a very powerful way to strengthen wisdom too. Because when we get close to or become intimate with suffering, it shows us the three universal characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. These same characteristics that our insight practice is pointing to. When we're in touch with our pain, whether it's physical or emotional pain, the characteristic of unsatisfactoriness or dukkha is very obvious. But we can also see not-self or anatta, that all experience is impersonal in a couple of ways. One is through the understanding that actually we're not in control. Because if we were in control, we'd be able to completely avoid suffering. We could choose not to experience aging and sickness and death or any of the other physical and mental pains that torment us. And the second way that we can understand not-self in relation to suffering is that when we really open to the pain, we start to see its universality. Just as we experience dukkha in our own lives, so too does everyone else. Our suffering is not personal. It's not evidence of our individual shortcomings or our neuroses or our failures. It's just part of the human condition and we're all in the same boat. 
And strangely enough, at times it's this understanding of the universality of dukkha that can start to make it bearable. When we get less caught up in identification with our own suffering, there's more room to appreciate other people's experiences. And there's a kind of chain reaction that sets up the interrelationship between wisdom and compassion. So as compassion strengthens, wisdom grows. And as wisdom grows, compassion strengthens. So again, a pretty simple example of this uh, from my own life. Again, from a time when I was on retreat at the Forest Refuge, quite a few years ago now. And at that time, I'd been experiencing a chronic health condition, and I was prescribed a course of three very strong antibiotics to take together to deal with it. And I was warned that they could cause intense nausea, but generally I don't easily get sick, so I thought, "Mm, it'll be fine. So I started taking them on retreat, and from the very first day, from the moment I woke up in the morning until I went to bed at night, I just felt like I was on the verge of throwing up. And this went on for 10 days, and sometimes I did actually throw up. And I tried to keep meditating through the discomfort, but pretty much all that was on my mind was, when am I going to vomit, and where's the nearest bathroom? And it was like my whole retreat very quickly collapsed into me and my stomach. That was about it. And after a while, I recognized uh, the sense of claustrophobia from this, this intense self-centeredness. So I decided to try and make the effort to, to break out of that. And I began to imagine all the other people around the world who might also be experiencing nausea. So I thought of all the pregnant women who were going through morning sickness and all the sailors out at sea in storms who were suffering from seasickness. And I thought of all the people undergoing chemotherapy who probably weren't able to eat. And I thought of all the people with hangovers telling themselves, never again. (laughs) And I imagined millions of us all over the world retching together in unison. (laughs) And surprisingly, alongside the compassion, I felt some real lightness and even happiness, even though the nausea was still very uncomfortable. So a few years later, I heard Bhikkhu Analio talking about compassion as pointing to something similar. And he suggested that when we practice compassion, Rather than trying to feel the suffering itself, it can be more beneficial to focus most of our attention on the wish to be free from suffering. And this protects us from falling into the suffering and getting caught in grief. And when we orient to the relief of suffering, there can be even traces of joy mixed in with it. So it can be useful to keep this in mind if we start to notice that our compassion is sliding into the near enemy of grief or overwhelm, and then coming back to the diamond diagram, we might move to the other point in the diamond, towards mudita, and turn our attention to what we can appreciate, what's going well, what we might be able to feel a sense of gratitude for. 
And this quality of mudita, or appreciative joy, it's sometimes also translated as sympathetic joy. And it has this very important function of protecting compassion from sliding into grief. And given this important function, it's surprising how little attention gets paid to it. For many people, this one is the hardest of the four to connect with. Perhaps because it is traditionally taught as happiness for another person's happiness. It has an altruistic component, one that takes delight in other people's good fortune as much as our own. And again, for many of us, this can be a challenge because many of us come from societies where there's strong conditioning around individualism and competitiveness. So it's not our heart's first response to feel joy at another person's happiness. We can more easily fall into what's known as the near enemy of mudita, which is envy, jealousy, resentment, or fear of missing out. The good news, though, is that as with all of the Brahma-Vihara qualities, we can actually train in it. And through practice, this capacity to appreciate joy becomes more available. And although the quality of joy does play a significant role in the Buddha's teachings, for various reasons it often seems to be overlooked or dismissed. And of the four Brahma-viharas, it's the one that we tend to hear the least about. Although I think those of you who are here for part one, you had the benefit of James Barras, who uh, has done a lot to emphasize the quality of awakening joy as a path of practice. Generally, though, more emphasis is given to metta and compassion and equanimity than appreciative joy. And perhaps that's, particularly in times that are challenging, it might seem naive or ridiculous to consider cultivating joy when our survival as a species is under threat. And each day we're exposed to so much horrifying news, not only in the world out there, but in our own communities and our own families so many different forms of social injustice and oppression and divisiveness that can easily pull us into despair. So we might legitimately ask, well, how can cultivating joy even be possible, let alone relevant at these times? And of course, I can't answer that for any of you, but in terms of my own practice, it's precisely because there's so much suffering in the world that I felt the need to consciously turn towards mudita, to orient towards non-suffering, so that I have the resources to be able to meet the difficulties with greater resilience and strength and skillfulness. And it may seem counterintuitive at first, but as we experiment with this practice of appreciating other people's happiness, we start to discover that it increases our own happiness as well. There's a well-known quote from the Tibetan master Shantideva that makes this point beautifully. He says, all the joy the world contains has come through wishing happiness for others. 
All the misery the world contains has come from wanting pleasure for oneself. All the joy the world contains has come through wishing happiness for others. All the misery the world contains has come from wanting pleasure for oneself. And on retreat, when we're practicing in silence and solitude, it might feel a little more difficult at times to find ways of cultivating this capacity to appreciate others' happiness. But we can find even tiny moments, tiny opportunities to do this. And again, I'd like to share one very a simple one from a time when I was on retreat in Australia early on in my practice. This was a monastic retreat. Uh, We were taking eight precepts and I wasn't used to that. So I was every day really looking forward to the candy that they would put out in the evenings. And mostly these were actually pretty boring candies. I think what you call hard candy or boiled sweets. But one day somebody had donated some different ones and they were actually um, kind of caramels and they had a blob of chocolate in the middle, which I think technically wasn't really allowable, but anyway, they were very good. (laughs) And so I was availing myself of these and then a few days later they started to run out and one evening I was in line and I saw that there was just one of these special gold-wrapped candies left. And at the same moment that I noticed it, the woman behind me noticed it too, and I could feel her sort of breathing down my neck. (laughs) And I was about to reach for it, and I suddenly realized, I don't need this candy. Why don't I let her have it? So I just took one of the other ordinary ones and let her have it. And when I went back to my place, I saw her take it and eat it. I enjoyed the candy that she ate far more than the candy that I ate. And I still remember it like 20 years later. (laughs) So these tiny examples, you know, the, the actual thing itself was so trivial, but the skillful mind states that it, um, evoked were really beneficial for me. So coming back to the diamond model again, we can see how compassion and appreciative joy strengthen and balance each other out. And when they come together at the top, we start to feel that deep ease of equanimity. And again, this word is a kind of an old-fashioned word. It's that heart and mind that's completely at ease, not wanting anything, not not wanting anything, simply resting in a state of deep acceptance and peace. And again, in our current times, that might sound like a very challenging or unrealistic uh, state to be in. But because of those challenging times, we need equanimity more than ever. Because this Pali word that's usually translated as equanimity is upekka, which literally means to look over, to be in a position to see the bigger picture. 
So equanimity has a very direct connection with insight practice, with wisdom. So to use an analogy, sometimes I think of it as like the experience of when we, if you've climbed up a mountainside and at first it's like I'm slogging through the undergrowth and it's dense and I can only see a few meters in front of me. But after a lot of uphill effort, I finally get above the tree line and then I can look back from where I came and see the countryside below me from a whole new perspective. And that openness and expansiveness and capacity to emerge from my own narrow viewpoint, all of that for me is a moment of real freedom. So this equanimity is a training of the heart and mind that helps us to deepen our capacity to experience freedom by making us less dependent on external conditions for our happiness. Most of us, most of the time, we put a lot of energy into trying to control the world out there, trying to manipulate our circumstances and other people to make ourselves happy. But as we all know, we can't often control life like that. And sometimes, in spite of our best efforts, we don't get what we want. But if we've been cultivating equanimity, we have more chance of experiencing peace even when things don't go our way. So because of this inner training, we're not so dependent on outer circumstances being exactly how we want them to be. So just this afternoon, I met with a friend who I haven't seen for a few months, and we were catching up, and he was telling me about some very difficult situations that he's been in in the last few months. And I was feeling a lot of pain on his behalf because the situations he was telling me about were really challenging. And I said to him at some point, well, how are you holding these? And he used a word that just, I felt it in my own body. He said, surrender. Surrender. That's all I can do. And the word just softened my own. I was feeling, you know, agitated on his behalf, but hearing that word, it's like it took me in the moment into a a state of equanimity momentarily. So there's a lot more that could be said about equanimity, but unfortunately we don't have time to go into it in detail tonight. So I just like to highlight its connection, the connection between equanimity and freedom. There's a famous teaching that occurs quite a few times in the Pali Canon in different contexts. It's attributed to the Buddha. And the version that I'm about to read comes from a teaching he gave to his attendant Ananda in the Greater Discourse to Malunkyaputta. It says, this is peaceful. This is sublime, namely, the stilling of all formations, the letting go of all attachments, the destruction of craving, fading away dispassion, cessation, nibbana. 
when I first heard that sutta, it had a strong impact on me. I found it pretty challenging. So I decided to take some time to explore it the next time I was on retreat, again at the forest refuge. And I was fortunate that uh, Joseph and Caroline were teaching because uh, Joseph was focusing on anatta or not-self and Caroline was focusing on the four Brahma-viharas. So during that retreat, I found that the text that I just quoted really helped me to experience equanimity in a whole new way because it helped me to see where I was holding on, where there was clinging and grasping and identifying with experience and to just let go. So some momentum developed with this practice and at one point this silent question came into my mind. But if I just keep letting go and letting go and letting go, what's that going to leave? And the spontaneous reply in that moment was love. And intuitively this made sense to me in a whole new way. That when we can reduce the amount of space taken up in our psyches by that fixed sense of self, there's literally more room for the Brahma-vihara practices to emerge and to grow. So in this way, again, we might see how these two wings of wisdom and compassion come together. Wisdom shows us the need to apply effort skillfully in terms of the four great efforts of the Noble Eightfold Path. And coming back again specifically to the third effort to develop unarisen, wholesome mental states. We learn how to cultivate kindness and compassion, joy and equanimity. And at first it might take quite a bit of effort to cultivate these states. But as we persevere over time, they start to become more and more the default settings of our hearts and minds. And we come closer to experiencing the truth about the nature of mind that Shabkar pointed to in the quote that I gave earlier. So may our efforts here on this retreat help us to realize the mind nature that is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. Thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.